Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, as we continue from the book of Matthew, Pastor Tim brings us a message as he takes a look at some of the new rules that Jesus brings to the table. And now, without further ado, let's head over to Pastor Tim. have a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. If I haven't met you yet, my name's Tim, and uh, I'm glad you're here. Uh, we've got some stuff to do today. So Matthew chapter 4, uh, we are working our way slowly. I'm going to steal the stool. Uh, we're working our way slowly, very slowly, through the gospel of, uh, gospel of Matthew, and we are now um, in chapter 4, just about to wrap up chapter 4. Uh, Matthew is one of four biographies on the life of Jesus, and so we have four historical accounts. Matthew is one of them. Matthew is the least likely of all the disciples to write an account of Jesus. By all, by all means, he should not be included. Matthew was a tax collector, and the tax collectors were hated by the Jewish people. And yet Jesus includes him in his story. And, and so Matthew's got a, a pretty interesting take on the life of Jesus. Matthew sees some things and catches some things that the other gospel writers, um, don't, they don't pay as much attention to, or sometimes that they, they don't call it out at all. And so Matthew catches it. Uh, and we are in chapter four. Uh, last week, we, uh, we're just going to continue along where we left off last week. Last week, we talked about the moment where Jesus calls the disciples. And um, if you were with us last week, I, I have been thinking about last week all week. Um, so if, if you weren't with us uh, last week, my, the sermon was, in, the intention of it was, uh, I was going to do some teaching on discipleship and what does discipleship look like in the first century culture. And then we were going to wrap up with a story that I hadn't told in uh, 15 years, a story from uh, this little book, Messy Spirituality by Mike Iaconelli. And uh, I hadn't told this story in 15 years. And so I, the goal was we're going to work up to this story. And the story itself was the story of a little, uh, a little boy and a puppy, of all stories. This is the reason why I haven't told it in 15 years. And uh, the little boy and the puppy, uh, the, kind of the, the, the big moment in the story was the little boy chose a puppy who was missing a limb because this little boy had a prosthetic limb. And uh, and so that was the, the goal of the sermon. I was going to tell this story. And as I'm walking up on the stage, we're going to have a video before the service, right? So the video's playing, and it's a student. And I, uh, I confessed to you all last week, I'll confess again, that I don't always watch all of the videos ahead of time. And so I hadn't watched this video. This is the first time I'm seeing it with you all. And so I'm setting up the stool, and I'm listening to her story, and I'm thinking, this feels oddly familiar. And, uh, and then uh, she begins talking about how she didn't, you know, didn't feel like she fit in, and she was telling her story. And, uh, and then she, she said, and I turned around just to make sure, but she said, like, yeah, I was born missing a hand, and, or without a hand, and um, you know, it was always a source of stress or struggle for me. And uh, it, was this, it was like flesh and blood on a story that I was going to tell. And uh, there's a moments where, you ever have these moments where... Um, so for me, it was this, it, the moment was, was very real. Like I've got to, I've now got to, I've got to like pull it together and talk. And yet my brain is trying to figure out, God, what are you trying to say in this? What, like what, um, is, there's times where it's like, God has to grab me by the sweater collar uh, and God's got to like shake me and remind me, maybe you've had these moments, but um, God's got to remind me, um, the, the Jewish word would be nudnik. 
it means dummy. Um, God's got to say to me, hey, nudnik, uh, I'm not just a study to su- uh, or a subject to be studied. Like, I am real. Don't miss me in the midst of talking about me. And uh, it was, well, for me last week, it was one of those moments where God was trying to, I felt God was trying to remind me of something. And maybe, um, maybe you need those reminders from time to time. Uh, a couple months ago, uh, early summer, actually, uh, I uh, had left the worship service and was kind of packing up my stuff. And on my desk in my office, somebody had filled out one of those guest cards in the seat back in front of you. And instead of where it says name, instead of putting their name, they had written the, a, a question. It was um, a very simple question. And the question said, is God real? Is God real? And, uh, and I've, there was no contact information, so I couldn't get a hold of the person, couldn't have a conversation with the person. Um, and there's times where you find yourself asking, God, are you real? God, are you there? You ever have those moments where it feels like, am I just talking to myself when I'm praying? Is that what's going on? Is this, is this going anywhere? Is it like my prayers, do they ever like float above this, the ceiling? Do they bounce back down? Like what's, what, God, where are you? Um, there are those moments. And then there are the moments where it feels as though like God is trying to break through. Sometimes there are big moments where it's, um, you, would, you would use the word miracle, or like it, they're the obvious moments. Then other times, they're more subtle, like a video um, connected to a story. Is God real? Um, there are times where life can feel like it's on autopilot, right? And we're really good at entertaining ourselves. We've got great entertainment. Maybe more than any generation in history, we've got HBO, Netflix, Peacock has its own network now. We got all the networks, we got all the things. We're really great at entertaining ourselves with sports and uh, all the things. Um, but like, have you ever found like even the, in the midst of all the entertainment, it, life can still be, I hate to even use this word, boring. And there are those moments where God breaks free and through, through all of that entertainment and all the things we surround ourselves with and God's like, I'm right here, I'm right here. Uh, and so last week we looked at this moment where, where Jesus met these disciples. Uh, at the time, they're fishermen. They, they had failed the program. They're not following another rabbi. They failed the educational program of their day. And so they're back doing their, their day job. They're fishing. And Jesus catches them. Uh, and Jesus ruins their life in, in a good way. Right? Jesus, Jesus meets them in what was just a normal day for them. And Jesus invites them into a whole future. And, uh, and we walked through that last week. Uh, today, what I want to do is I want to look at the story that follows that story. Now, the story that will follow this story is the most famous sermon Jesus will ever preach. So the, or, or anyone will ever preach. The story that will follow this, this story is the story of the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to spend multiple weeks in the story of the Sermon on the Mount. But what I want to look at today is the, there's a little story that often gets missed that's between the calling of the disciples and the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I think this story sets up some of the emotional heart that I want us to go into the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I want us to think about this uh, as we head into um, what will be the blueprint for the movement. Um, but uh, if you have a Bible, we're going to pick it up in Matthew 4, verse 23. Matthew 4, 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill and with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. 
Large crowds gathered from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Okay, I'm going to do this quickly, but I want you to notice four things in this passage. Four things. First, notice how quickly Jesus is going from uh, just a... Uh, he was baptized and really no one recognized him. John says, oh, this is who he is. So very quickly, he went from somebody who nobody knows to full-on rock star status. Everybody knows Jesus. There are people coming from the Galilee. Galilee is religious Jews. You've got the Decapolis, which is uh, Roman. It's the enemies of the Jews. You've, so you got Galilee, you've got the Decapolis, you have uh, people coming from Jerusalem and Judea. That's the who's who of the Jewish religious world. Like that's the people who have made it in their minds. Uh, and then you have a group of people from across the Jordan. It's a region known as Perea. It's a, it's a foreign people group who worship a foreign God. Jesus comes to uh, very four different groups of people. And uh, pretty quickly, you've got the entire region coming to Jesus and wanting to follow Jesus. That's the first observation. Second observation, Jesus does not discriminate in who he heals. It's a big deal. Jesus, Jesus heals the religious and the non-religious. He doesn't discriminate. There's no bubble test before he heals you. Jesus, Jesus heals his neighbors and the enemies of his neighbors, the Romans. Jesus heals the wealthy, and he heals the poor. Jesus does not discriminate in who he, who he heals. Third point is a big one. Jesus does differentiate between the crowds and his disciples. There are the crowds, the people who have followed Jesus because what he can do for them. Right? There are people coming from all over because he's healed people. They want healing. They want something from Jesus. Then there are the disciples. They want to be like Jesus. Jesus does discriminate between who he heals and who he entrusts with his mission. A little over a week ago, the interview was on January 4th, so it's 2022. There was an interview by an organization called the Gospel Coalition with a pastor named Tim Keller. Anybody hear of Tim Keller? Tim Keller is uh, arguably one of the most respected pastors in America. It's actually really hard to watch right now because he's been battling cancer. And so um, he's aware and we are aware that his life is, this life is about to pass. Um, But he had an interview and they were asking, in this interview, they had asked a a series of questions to uh, Tim Keller. I mean, Tim Keller is, uh, Tim Keller has planted over 400 churches in over 50 states um, Tim Keller planted a church in New York City, which has become, New York City is a hard city to plant a church in, um, which has become a full-on movement. Uh, he's written over 20 books. Uh, and uh, they, he was asking in an interview um, about this particular cultural moment, the one that you and I are living in right now. Uh, this is what he said about this moment. He said, I'd say that the culture is definitely more polarized than it has ever been. And I've, even, and I've never seen the kinds of conflicts in churches in the past that we see today. In virtually every church, there is a smaller or larger body of Christians who have been radicalized to the left or to the right by extremely effective and completely immersive internet and social media loops, news feeds, and communities. People are bombarded 12 hours a day with pieces, with pieces that present a particular political point of view, and the main way it seeks to persuade is not through argument, but through outrage. 
people, and here's the key sentence, people are being formed by this immersive form of public discourse far more than they are being formed by the church. This is creating a crisis. No, I've not seen anything like this in the past. This is creating a crisis. He's right, isn't he? He feels right, doesn't it? Crisis is the word he uses. This is a pastor who's respected maybe more than any pastor. And the language he uses for this moment you and I live in, in the church, is the word crisis. Um, Right before COVID, uh, 2017, uh, right before COVID, I heard, by the way, this, just before the service that, have you seen the movie Encanto? You know, we do not talk about Bruno. Some people are saying, we do not talk about COVID. That, that's the, <laughs> we don't talk about Bruno or COVID. Um, but uh, pre-COVID, uh, Barna organization did a poll, and uh, in that poll, they had asked the question about um, faith, and do you believe in God, essentially, was the question. Do you believe God is real? And uh, the study came back that 75% of Americans believe not just that God is real, but that, that the Christian God is real. 75% of Americans. But when asked a deeper question, um, and the deeper question was, do you want, or do you, are you striving to have an authentic desire to grow closer to God? Only 4 to 6% of people responded with yes. To say it another way, 75% would fall into the crowds category, but only roughly 5% say we want to look like a disciple. Let me give you another number because I think numbers help. Um, another number. Uh, any guesses as to how many times the word Christian is used in the Bible? Any guesses? Zero. Okay, more than zero? More than one? Three. Three times. Three times, Christian. Now, here's another question. Uh, take a guess at how many times the word disciple is used in the Bible. North of 100? North of 200? South of 500. Uh, 269 times. So three times the word Christian is used. 269 times the word disciple is used. There are the crowds of following Jesus. They come and they go in the Bible. They come when Jesus is healing them and they leave as soon as Jesus turns up the heat and says some hard things that they don't like. Then there are the disciples, those who are called into deeper mission. Um, Last week we talked about the process of being a disciple involved in all-out commitment, an all-out commitment to following Jesus. Because that's the third point. Uh, there's the crowds, and then there's this is the disciples. Last observation, fourth observation. Uh, Jesus has crowds. You got a picture of this one. There's crowds, and then there are these 12 disciples. And Jesus, we, we are told in chapter 5, verse 1, turns to his disciples and begins to teach them. I think this is a hard one to catch unless you're picturing it intellectually, like mentally. Jesus turns to his disciples. You have to imagine how they're feeling at this point, right? They failed the program in every other, uh, every other rabbi's camp, and here they are. And Jesus has all of a sudden become very famous. And you have to imagine their insecurities. If they're like me, my insecurities are kicking in, right? Like they're kicking in. Is he now, like he's got way more smart people. There's smarter people than us that are gathered. There's richer people than us that are gathered. Is he now going to choose different disciples? And then Jesus turns and he speaks to them. I find it to be a a tender moment, um, a beautiful moment. But there's something else going on in this moment that um, I think would take the moment from like, pretty and beautiful to full-on woe. 
Um, Now, let me show you what I I think they would have caught. Matthew for sure catches it. Matthew has been dropping breadcrumbs throughout his gospel. He wants us to catch this piece. I've got to move through it quickly. So I'm going to do a 45-minute sermon on this in about five. Okay, so I'm going to do my best to go quickly. But uh, I promise you, if you're not listening closely, it's going to fly right over you. So it'll be fine. We'll make it through. Uh, But let me show you what Matthew's doing quickly. We've been reading it now. We're four chapters through. Uh, But notice what Matthew's been doing. Matthew chapter 1 Jesus is born in the reign of an evil king. This evil king in Matthew chapter 2 wants to kill all the baby boys in the region because he's trying to kill Jesus. What story do we already, just with those two breadcrumbs, what story does this sound like? Moses and Pharaoh. Um, Exodus chapter 1, way back in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 1, Moses is born into the world under the reign of an evil king named the Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 2, the Pharaoh, like Moses has to get, Moses escapes to Egypt um, because there's a hit put out on all the babies' lives. Moses escapes to Egypt. It's a brilliant plot twist um, where Moses is actually raised in Pharaoh's house. But you have a picture very quickly that Matthew wants you to catch that Jesus is in many ways the new Moses, leading a new group of people out of slavery. Moses led the Israelites, or God through Moses, led the Israelites out of slavery. Jesus is about to lead people to a new promised land that he calls the kingdom of God. Now, and when you start to see the breadcrumbs, um, you start to see the breadcrumbs everywhere. Um, For instance, in Exodus chapter 12, we're we're told that the the Israelites were slaves in Egypt for 430 years. Exodus 12, verse 40 and 41. They're slaves in Egypt for 430 years. Now, that might feel like an arbitrary number, but, but the author of Exodus wants you to know the number. Now, stay with this. Between your Old Testament and your New Testament, your Bibles will have a single blank page. That single blank page represents 400 years of history. The Jewish people referred to those 400 years as the 400 years of silence. Up until this point, they believed God spoke to us through the prophets. God spoke to us through the songwriters. But for 400 years, God stopped speaking. They refer to it as the 400 years of silence. During those 400 years, the Romans came in and through a brutal tax system, put the Israelites in a form of slavery. 400 years of silence, 400 years of slavery. Now you're thinking, wait a minute, 400 and 430 aren't the same. Well, the gospel writers insist that you know something about the life of Jesus. Jesus will not begin his public ministry until he's how old? Four hundred years of silence plus thirty years of silence is four hundred thirty years of silence. Matthew wants you to connect the dots. Uh, Jesus will, uh, as an adult, the first thing he'll do is he'll enter the waters of baptism. He'll leave the waters of baptism. He'll go to a desert, and in the desert he'll be tempted by Satan for forty days and forty nights. Jesus will respond to those three temptations by quoting a sermon. Now, we don't think of it as a sermon, but it's a sermon. The sermon Jesus quotes is a sermon that we call the book of Deuteronomy. It's the sermon Moses gives the Israelites before they're going to go into the promised land. Three times, Jesus says, let me quote you the sermon. Moses, 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 Moses. I think these disciples in this moment, they would start to piece together the dots that Jesus is the new Moses. Now, 
That was five minutes. That was okay. That was okay. <sighs> Take a breath. Um, there's a lot of uh, powerful lessons, I think, in that one little teaching. Uh, one lesson, at least, is that, uh, and this is maybe for you this morning, um, if it feels like God has been silent, don't mistake God's silence for God's apathy. Um, God was never apathetic to the Jewish people. God, was ne- God had never forgotten them. In fact, we read that God heard their cries. If it feels like God hasn't spoke in a while, don't mistake God's silence for God's lack of concern. Um, but back to those disciples. The disciples, uh, they are... Um, they failed the program. They're not the best of the best. They're not the brightest of the brightest, and they know it. And then Jesus comes to them, and he ruins their life in the best way. He says, come follow me, and they do, and they go everywhere. And as they follow Jesus, they notice that the crowd behind them gets bigger and bigger. He's teaching, and it grows. He's healing, and it grows. Miracle after miracle after miracle, and now people are coming from all over, and then Jesus turns to them. They understand he's a new Moses. The crowds understand what he's doing. And Jesus turns to them. But there's a detail in the story that I think if we're not careful in reading it, we'll miss the detail. And it's a powerful detail. Let me see if you catch it. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Did you catch the detail? I think I bolded it. That makes the detail obvious to catch. <laughs> a mountainside. Now, a mountainside. It, now, here's where this gets confusing. Luke, who records the exact same story. So Luke records the same sermon that Jesus is about to preach. Only when Luke records the sermon, he records it differently. Luke says, chapter 6, he went down with them and stood on a level place. You could also translate that a plain Luke refers to this not as a sermon on the mount, but as a sermon on the plain. And if you go through a period in your life where you find yourself asking the question, as most of us have or will, um, is God real? God, is this, is this, is this all make-believe? You will Google, is God real, or is the Bible trustworthy? And at some point, you'll bump into some, somebody pointing this out. How do you trust the Bible? Look at it, look at it, look at it. Contradicts itself right there, right in front of your eyes. It's contradiction. And then you will look at that, and you, you may be tempted to say, I can't trust any of it. How do we trust this? Let me show you a picture of the region. This is the, the, the area most scholars believe Jesus would have given the sermon. You can see how you could call that a plain, right? Um, it's also technically part of, the, part of the Galilean foothills. Let me show you a picture looking up um, from the water. Now, it's... If I got to pick plain or mountain, I'm going to go plain, right? Would you say plain over mountain? Yeah, yeah. Luke tells us that his agenda in recording his gospel, Luke's agenda is to tell you a historically accurate, chronological, detailed or event uh, or a layout of the events. Luke's trying to give you what actually happened as it happened. Um, so Luke says, that's a plain. Matthew says, no, 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 that's a mountain. Now, it's, you, you may say, I don't know, I don't see mountain. But you could see how it could be both. The word is, it could be both. The area could be both. But Matthew's got a bigger agenda he's trying to help you. He wants us to see something else. Namely, Matthew wants us to catch that Jesus is the new Moses. One of the questions we have to ask when we read this is, is this connected to the Moses story at all? I know I'm going really fast through this, but stay with me. Does Moses, at any point in his life, go up on a mountain? <laughs> yes! Why? Talks to God. 
And he's, got, he's given the law. The story we know of the time, uh, Exodus 19, Moses goes up the mountain. Exodus 20, he's given the Ten Commandments. We know the story, and often we'll say that's the moment where God gives Moses the law, the Torah, as we looked at last week, the way, the truth, and the life to the Jews. But there's another thing that happens in this moment that we often miss. God doesn't just give Moses the law. God also gives Moses an identity. Notice what he says in Exodus 19. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. The language given to Moses is you will be for me a kingdom of priests. Now this word to an ancient audience is loaded. They understood that the priest's job was to stand in the gap. There were the people, the crowds, and then there was God. And the priest's job was to stand between the crowds and God. The priest's job was to be the visible image to a people of the invisible God. The priest's job was to be the hands and the feet of the invisible God, to show the world what God is like. Moses understands the weight of this. In fact, uh, Moses will come down the mountain. You know the story, or maybe you've heard the story. Um, He's got the tablets. He sees them dancing around a golden calf. He's livid. He smashes the commandments. Why is he so mad? Well, in part, because you're supposed to be priests. You're suppo- the mission is to show the world what God is like. You've, the calling is high. In fact, uh, the, the, if there's anyone who understands the calling, it's Moses. Um, maybe the best definition for what the priest's job was, the best job description, was given to Moses himself. Uh, in Exodus chapter 7, Moses is told this by God. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. You will live in such a way that when you go to Pharaoh, I'll come through you. You will be a human version of the invisible God. The priest's job was to put flesh on the divine, on God. The priest's job was to show the world, what God looks like. I think this is the moment where these disciples, like the light bulb goes off. We're supposed to, you have to imagine them like counting. Okay, if Jesus is the new Moses and uh, the, he's going to give us a new law, right? That's why he says, you have heard it said, but I tell you. Well, then we're the new Israel. We're the new priests. How many of us are there? One, two, three, oh, 12. Okay, that's on the nose. Um, you, you have to imagine like this is the light bulb moment. The priest job is to reflect back what God is like. Um, Jesus will begin and launch into the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to skip that part for now. Um, but, the, but their job is to heal this broken world. The crowds have gathered. Their job is to heal this broken world because that's God's desire. Uh, let me tell you a story. Um, this is another story. I've been rereading this little book. I adore this little book. Um, 
messy spirituality. There's another story that he tells in this little book that I find to be really powerful. I, th- I find a good story helps me make sense of really complicated ideas. Uh, it's a story, the story he tells is a story of a, a youth group worker. We'll call him Robert. Um, he's, a, he's a student ministries volunteer. And uh, he signed up to do this job because he loved students. And he loved, um, he, weekly they had their student gatherings and they would, uh, you know, they would play games and do goofy things. He didn't mind that. But what he loved, um, and the reason he said yes to being a student volunteer, was he loved when they'd break into small groups and he got to walk students through the hardships of adolescence. And he got to listen to them and he got to coach them. And so, so Robert signed up because he loved that moment. But there was one part of uh, student ministry that, if he was honest, he hated. Um, once a month, as part of the student past, the, the, the youth pastor's um, attempt to teach the students how to serve, uh, once a month, the students would go to a nursing home and um, they would put on a worship service for all those in the nursing home. And so uh, every month, he, he would go because he wanted to put it, be a good example to his students, and yet every month, he kind of dreaded this moment. Uh, and he would go to the back of you know, the nursing home, and as the students were doing their thing, putting on a worship service, he would just try to blend into the wall. Like, just let, let's get this past. Let this hour go by fast, please. And uh, one day, as he's just trying to like blend in, uh, a gentleman is wheeled out, and the nurse puts this gentleman's wheelchair right next to Robert. And uh, he looks down at this gentleman, and his eyes are shut. He thinks he's sleeping, um, but then all of a sudden he feels something on his hand and he realizes that this guy's trying to hold his hand. And so the next thing he knows, he's holding a guy's hand. And he's thinking, well, this is incredibly awkward. <laughs> this is very awkward. I'm holding his hand. And if any of the students see this, they're going to mock me. I know how students think. They're going to tease me. They're going to mock me. But I can't let go of his hand. He held my hand. So for an hour, he holds this elderly gentleman's hand. Guy's eyes are shut. He thinks he's sleeping. Um, But it's time to go. So the service is over. He's holding this guy's hand. So he says to him, I've got to go now. I love you. And then he squeezes his hand. And as he's leaving, he's like, I love you? Why did I say I love you? What a weird thing to say to this guy. I love you? Uh, He's in his own head about it. Like, why did I tell this guy I love you? Well, thankfully, I don't think he paid attention to any of it. So, okay, whatever. Next week, uh, or sorry, the next month, same gentleman's wheeled out. Same guy does the thing on his hand. He holds the guy's hand. Whole service, again, ends the service with a squeeze. I've got to go now. I love you. Next month comes. Guy comes out. He holds his hand. I got to go now. I love you. Squeeze. By month four, he's actually kind of looking forward to this moment. Like this guy's coming, coming out, and there's something about this moment that he kind of finds sacred. And he comes out and he holds this guy's hand and he says, uh, on his way out, I love you. I got to go now. And he squeezes his hand. And uh, again, the next month and again, the next month. Seventh month comes and he's, um, this, the students have gathered and they're singing their worship songs. And he's standing in the back waiting for this gentleman to be wheeled out. And the guy's not coming. And, uh, and so he finds one of the nurses uh, and he asks, like, hey, the gentleman you wheel out every week, where is he? And she said, oh, um, come with me. He's taking a turn, uh, and he's, we have him on uh, hospice care. He's not going to make it long. Come with me. 
And she brings him back to a back room, and the students are doing their thing. He thinks they're fine. I'll, I'll go back. And he sees uh, this elderly gentleman laid out on a bed. And uh, he um, goes up to the bed, and he grabs this, this man's hand, and he begins to say a prayer. Um, and he says to this man, uh, you can leave if you have to. Um, you, can, you can go. You're loved. God is good. You can go. And then the youth pastor comes in and says, hey, we're done. We've, we've got to go. We've got to go. Students are all on the bus. We've got to go. And so the, Robert grabs the man's hand and squeezes it and says, I've got to go. I love you. Thinking he's going to squeeze back, nothing. And as he's leaving, he feels the ever slight nudge on his hand. And he loses it, just full-on weeping. As he's scrambling out the door, crying, um, a, he bumps into a girl, 30-ish, 35 maybe, and she stops him and says, were you just with my grandpa? And he said, yeah, yeah, you know, every month I, like, we put on a worship service and I got to know him kind of. And she says, You've been, you're the guy. And he goes, what? And she goes, yeah, so my grandpa, um, a few years back, uh, he had a stroke, and um, it's messed. He's very lucid intellectually, but he couldn't speak well, and he, was, he didn't like to speak to people because he couldn't get his words out quite right. And so he didn't say much to anyone, but he talked to me. And last night, I got the phone call that uh, he was passing, and so I rushed up here, and he said to me uh, in the clearest voice, I've ever heard him talk, in the last several years at least, tell Jesus I say goodbye. And I said to Grandpa, no, Grandpa, you've got it backwards. You're going to see Jesus. You tell Jesus I say hello. And he said, no, you tell Jesus I say goodbye. And she goes, I don't understand what you mean. And he said, once a month, Jesus comes and he visits me. And he holds my hand, and he tells me that I love you. Tell Jesus, I love you, but I got to go. Tell him I say goodbye. And she looks at the guy, and she says, Robert, and she says, I think you're Jesus to him. You and I are how our world will come to know who Jesus is. You and I. If, if Tim Keller is correct, and Tim Keller is a theological giant, he's probably right. We are living in a crisis, and the crisis is causing people to ask the question, is God real? God, are you good? Is God real? The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. We are to be the priests. That's our job. How will the world know is God real? Go to Marshall, or maybe even better, Brown, because we do Kids Hope and Hand to Hand in these school systems, and find a little child who has been blessed with a backpack of food because you brought food into the back, or a mentor because you gave up an hour a week. It was hard to do. Some of you have 
worked around your whole entire schedule so you could give up an hour a week. But you find that kid and you ask them if God is real. You have been like God to those kids. You find uh, someone, um, we have a partnership with Ethiopia and through Compassion, and we've got over 200 kids that are sponsored. Healthcare, food, clothes, and someone to tell them, about the, the, tell them about the fact that they are loved by God. You find a child in Ethiopia, and you ask them, is God real? You have been like God to those children in Ethiopia. God's love through you. Find out, uh, um, right now we've got a number of missional communities that have um, been gathering. Uh, you all, are, are many of you are part of the missional communities. And um, the, the stories we've heard through the missional communities, uh, some of you, 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 you were willing to trust your missional community with your addiction. Um, there has been marriages who said, we are not going to survive this. And your missional community, not because you had to or it's what good Christians do, but because you loved them, you were conduits of God's love uh, in their moment of crisis. You've been like God to one another. We have planted churches, um, maybe not the level Tim Keller has, but we have planted churches in West Michigan um, we have planted churches in Nepal. We have planted churches in India. We have planted churches in Africa, throughout Africa. Um, there are people who know the name of Jesus because, who have come back to life. You've been like God to them. Um, maybe when we ask the question, God, where are you? I wonder from time to time if God doesn't look at his church and ask the question, uh, where are you? What did you think my plan was to hug this world? Who did you think was going to do it? Maybe when we ask the question, like, maybe when we say things like, all you need is God, maybe God's like, yep, that's true. So where are you? Because that's how I'm showing the world that I, I love you. Uh, God has invited us to be the priests. And I think the question that stands before us as we, a kingdom of priests, Peter will double down on this in the New Testament. I think the question that we must ask is, are we crowd or are we disciple? Who, 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 who in our world will be the hands and feet of Jesus to West Michigan? Who in our world will, be, will live in such a manner that when, just by the way we live, someone will look and say, well, that must be what Jesus is like. I don't even know if I believe in it, but, but that must be what God, if God is real, he must, be, he's shining through that person. Who will be the people in our world who go to the darkest places of our community? And there are some dark places in our community. And speak to the darkness, light. Who? Who will go? If you find yourself at all saying, well, I'll do that, I, then you come from a long tradition of, of people throughout history who have heard the cry of God and have responded with, God, here I am. You can send me. I'll do it. That's what it means to be the church. Sometimes it's big things. Some people are going to travel overseas, do big things. Sometimes it's things that feel small, like holding someone's hand, that change the entire game. Next week, we're going to launch into the sermon that Jesus will give to these disciples. He's going to give them a new Torah, a new law. Um, but today, I think the wrestling we have before we jump into the sermon is, are we in? Are we in? Let's have a word of prayer. Uh, Lord. 
Uh, Lord, we create space. Um, I, I, Lord, we, we use our imaginations and we ask that your spirit would speak to our imaginations or through our imaginations. And Lord, we picture ourselves gathered with those crowds and with those disciples. And uh, Lord, we, um, we picture you turning to us and speaking. Lord, whatever it is you want to say to us individually, we are listening Lord, for those of us who have pain or heartache or loss, what do you desire to speak to us? Uh, Jesus, for those of us who want to be part of the mission but we don't know how, what do you want to speak to us? Uh, Lord, is your spirit, if, if you're able to speak your spirit can speak to a spirit of an infant. Uh, Lord, would you give us the heart of an infant to hear you? And then, Lord, would you help us to trust? Jesus, we love you, and we pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen. Would you please stand? As we've said so many times before, we just want to say thanks for spending a little time with us. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, visit us on the web at www.southharbor.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sundays at 10 a.m., you can find our services streamed live on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor Church and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.